You are listening to an interview between Professor Michael Shackleton and Dr. Martin Bond, who is the author of the first English language biography of Richard Kudenhoff Kalergi. Professor Michael Shackleton, a special professor in European institutions at the University of Maastricht and former head of the European Parliament Information Office in the UK. Dr. Martin Bond is a distinguished senior fellow of Regents University London and also served as head of the EP Information Office in the UK some years earlier. Both the speakers are also patrons of UACES. Hello, Martin. It's a pleasure Hello. Hello, to, to see you today. And uh, it's a great uh, delight to talk about your new book and uh, Richard Kudenhoff Kalagi. Let's call him RCK uh, for short for the rest of this discussion. Yes, I quite agree. When I was writing it, I found him such a mouthful, I abbreviated it. <laughs> RCK had an extraordinary life and started it as a son of an Austrian uh, diplomat and a Japanese geisha, uh, was born in Japan. But I didn't want to look at his early life, but I thought we should go is in straight away at uh, his uh, book that sold many thousands of copies that he wrote in 1923 called Pan Europa. And I wondered if you could uh, tell us a, something about what he meant by Pan Europa and how he thought we could get there. Yes, with pleasure. Um, 1923, it's October, he, he publishes this, the very end last week of October 23. Um, as a personal publishing venture, he, he founds his own printing house, basically, a small publishing house called Pan Europa Verlag, um, because his previous publisher for three or four little books of mixture of politics and philosophy that he'd done before had gone bankrupt in the Great Inflation. Um, so instead of being paid off for the few spare copies, instead of the money he wanted, uh, he was going to run his own show and make his own profit. Um, what, he, what he did really was to put down things he'd been mulling over for three or four years and been talking over with some leading politicians and any friends and acquaintances of his, which was how on earth to reorganize Europe after the First World War. That's the question he was trying to answer. And what he said was... This is a space, a geopolitical space, and geopolitics was new at the time. Uh, it's a geopolitical space that must be ordered without any one country dominating. The problem that led to the First World War was that there were four or five competing empires, and that's why half of them got smashed and two or three of them survived. Um, and the net result, the creation of new nation states, made it harder to get people to cooperate because there were more that had to cooperate, but it was cooperation, not competition, that was the way forward. And that's really what Pan-Europe is about. It's a way of restoring peace inside Europe in order that Europe can again have a big voice in Europe in world affairs. The geopolitics becomes safe in the European space in order that you can project power in the world scene. That's what it's about. And how did he think we would get there from where we were in 1923. What was his method for uh, getting to Pan-Europa? His method to, for doing it was to corral the leaders, basically. He said, if you can get the people who are in charge politically to agree this, the people will follow. 
And he built this on a whole philosophical approach to Plato and the Guardians. And he, he studied philosophy as well as history in university. And you can see the two tangling together all, all through this. Um, but he wanted the leaders to agree. And so what he was trying to do was himself pursue a mission of going around meeting them all and telling them that this was a good idea, they ought to do it, uh, and then trying to induce them to do it because it would have certain advantages. Obviously, it would cut down on armaments. You wouldn't have to arm against your neighbor if all 28 of you, there were 28 states at the time, if all 28 of you could agree. Um, you wouldn't, uh, you would have a better economy if you had no tariffs between your countries rather than high tariff walls. Uh, you'd have a bigger market. Um, everything that we think of as normal, as it were, in post-Second World War Europe, he was promoting as post-First World War Europe. So what you're saying is that he thought he could get there by talking to the leaders of uh, the European nations. And indeed, he seemed to achieve astonishing levels of access. There seemed to be nobody that he wasn't able to talk to, whether it was Gustav Stresemann, Aristide Briand, uh, Herriot. Uh, in every country, he seemed to have the ability to get to speak to them. Uh, but I wondered, uh, this opened him up to the uh, complaint of some that uh, it was, if you like, a movement of intellectuals and uh, uh, great leaders without any popular base. Uh, do you think that's a fair criticism, that uh, he wasn't terribly interested in the, uh, the so to speak, the, the, level, the notion of consent from the people for what he, what he wanted to do? I think you're exactly, you put your, your finger right on it. He, he wanted consent of leaders, um, and he felt that the societies were structured by strong leadership and popular assent was really his, his assumption. Uh, hence his, his admiration for Mussolini, for the, early, the earliest of the fascists um, to have any success. And uh, it didn't lead him in any way to admire Hitler. On the very contrary, he was a strong competitor of Hitler's uh, because he could see Hitler was leading towards dominance by one of the potential dominant powers of Europe, which was totally contrary to his plan of overall consent. Yes, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about his infatuation with Mussolini, which looking back from uh, the vantage point of 20, 100 years on, looks extraordinarily strange that he should have been in favour of trying to win Mussolini to his cause. And he wrote to him and tried to get an audience with him, uh, but never was able to actually meet him for a full discussion. Why do you think he did feel so strongly that... Uh, Italy somehow was the key to finding uh, the, the, the key to Pan-Europa, if you like. Well, I think the penny dropped within quite quickly that if Italy were to line up with Germany, this would be a serious schism inside Europe. It would be uh, a potentially fatal flaw. He doesn't say that explicitly. I don't, haven't found that in correspondence explicitly, but I think it's an assumption behind several of the things that he does. Um, and he manages to, dare I say, fend that off, or at least live in the hopes that it will be fended off right up till 1936, till the Pact of Steel, um, or, or the first big meetings between Hitler and, and Mussolini, 36. Mussolini is still kosher, as it were, for, for dealing with him as if he were potentially someone who could work with democracies. Not that he's strongly in favour of democracies. I've mentioned this strong leadership is what he's after. 
he thinks that societies are led from the top, not from the bottom. Um, and he, he pushes it even further with Mussolini, right up until 38 and 39 even, that he's writing to Mussolini, trying to stop him engaging in the war, which he obviously he joins late. The war is declared by the Nazis on the assumption the Italians will join in, but Mussolini has been saying to Hitler privately, I need two more years, three more years, if I'm going to rearm and be potentially a useful ally. Am I not right that uh, he has much to thank Mussolini for because uh, when the Gestapo were looking for RCK uh, in 1938, uh, it was thanks to Mussolini that he was able to get in a car and get out of Austria and get to uh, Switzerland under Italian escort. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, it's a remarkable little episode that here is a man chased by the Nazis who are headed by... Mussolini's slightly reluctant alliance, but nonetheless the person who is going to obviously head the alliance that Mussolini is going to spend the next X years working in. Uh, and it's Mussolini who helps him get through into neutrality. It's largely, I think, based on personal acquaintance. They, they did meet once. They had one strong, long conversation about Nietzsche. They discussed him in French and Nietzsche's ideas about European unity, which are quite extraordinary, but we won't go into them now. But there was an a meeting of intellectual minds there, which I think both Mussolini respected and certainly Kutenhoof respected. And in addition, Kutenhoof was extremely friendly with Dolfus, um, the first Austrian chancellor who was assassinated by the Nazis. And Dolfus's widow was staying with Mussolini, actually, before at, at the time of the murder, uh, the assassination. And... Uh, Kudenhoof spoke at Dolphus's funeral, saying Dolphus had died for Europe. I mean, it was a great Mark Antony speech of his uh, in Austria, obviously not noted in Britain, no question of that. <laughs> but uh, his interpretation was that these, these leaders, who we see as fascist or proto-fascist, um, were in fact on the right side. They could be people who helped to build a united Europe. Do you think it's possible to place uh, RCK on the political spectrum between uh, left and right, uh, given his uh, tendency to look to uh, leaders uh, to create pan-Europa? Uh, was he rather blind to what their political stance was, uh, or was he looking for allies across the political spectrum? It's fair to say he was looking for them across the spectrum. Um, he, he declared himself always to be apolitical in the sense of not überparteilich, was his German phrase, so, so above the parties, not, not apolitical in the sense of not interested in politics. On the contrary, he was above the parties. Just as he, was, he, he declared himself, here we are, an Austrian count, a courtesy title, but nonetheless an Austrian count, declaring himself to be above class, right? His solution is not a class-based solution. It's not the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's not the dictatorship of the capitalists. It's a mixture. Uh, and it's not um, for the communists. It's not for the right-wingers. It's somewhere in the middle, but it's very flu. It's very unfixed. And he has great difficulty. It takes him until 1932 before he transforms his Pan-Europa Union, which is a, a sort of mixture of a think tank and a proto-mass movement, into a party. He calls it the European Party, but it's right on the eve of the elections where the, where the Nazis break through, and it never stands a candidate, but he transforms it into a party, issues its statutes, has a manifesto, 
but it gets nowhere. So he's yeah. late in coming to party politics. I wondered if you could perhaps say something more about uh, the activities of the Pan-Europa Union, because as well as having published his book, uh, he organized a whole series of congresses, extremely elaborate affairs, uh, which required the full support of his uh, wife, who one might mention in passing was uh, a, uh, an Austrian actress, uh, 12 years his senior, but who put her whole soul into helping him to organize these enormous congresses. And I just wondered, who did he invite to these events? Well, he invited the great and the good from every country in which he had any contact. Um, and, and it was right across the parties, to be fair. I mean, Kerensky came from, from the Soviet Union. I mean, Kerensky spoke in the 1926 Congress in Vienna. Um, now, generally speaking, he had very, very cool and distant relations to, to, to Moscow. So let's leave that on one side. But let's say in, in, um, in, in Berlin, Paul Lerber, who headed the Social Democrats and was speaker in the in the Reichstag, was the closest associate of him in Berlin. Um, uh, he got on well with Gustav Stresemann. Uh, these, these didn't all attend the congresses, but they would send best wishes if not attending themselves. Kerensky did actually attend. Obviously, he was out of, out of power and floating at the time. But he also did have attending um, prime ministers uh, and leaders of the opposition from pretty well every country in Europe. I think 23 of the 28 countries in Europe sent people to the 1926 Congress. They didn't send them in an official capacity. It was all their private, they attended privately. Uh, Thomas Mann was there. Um, he was in correspondence with Heinrich Mann as well as Thomas Mann. So it shows you the political division, Thomas Mann to the right, Heinrich Mann, his brother to the left. Um, and, and he bridged it. And this was, it was a man of great hope. I mean, in a funny way, I'm trying to think of a, 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 a British parallel that you can make. And I suppose it's something like the breakaway of the, the Social Democrats from an anti-European Labour Party at the time, which brought in a whole lot of what were known as political virgins into the scene. Uh, and in a funny way, he's doing that. It, it's at a, a higher cultural level, and it's not specifically political on a political um small single issue like the, the, the British one in a sense was, but they, what he's saying is that Europe, this great big amorphous thing is an entity. It is not something that should remain amorphous. We can crystallize Europe. There's a tradition, a cultural tradition, which is different and separate in different countries, but unified when you see it as a continent. He, he was brought up, the phrase he uses by his father, Though he died when his, he was only 10 when his father died, but he uses the phrase, I was brought up to, to think in continents, not in countries. Perhaps a question about these congresses that brought the great and the good that uh, comes to mind <coughs> is how on earth were they financed? It must have been extraordinarily hard to get everybody to stay because we didn't just stay in university campuses they stayed in the best hotels in europe yes, yes, uh, was he did he pay for this or was this something that everybody paid for themselves well the finances are fairly confused as you can imagine i mean i've got i've poured over them and, and uh, i can't quite make all the figures add up but but i know where the, the initial main thrust came from um as a young man he was uh, very much attracted through his wife ida roland uh, who was a jewish austrian or jewish slovak um uh, 
actress, um, very, very fine, very high quality. And she was the Austrian answer to Sarah Bernhardt. So she's given that status. Um, and uh, she was a strong supporter of the peace movement. And the peace movement was international in organization uh, for its congresses, but national chapters, obviously. So that gave him straight away a network among the peace movement, which tended to be of the left rather than of the right. It was a progressive movement. Uh, and he also joined something which was only made legal in Austria when the, uh, when the empire fell and the republic was established, which was the Freemasons. They'd been legitimate in Hungary, but banned in Austria. Catholic influence in Austria had banned them. But when they were made legitimate, they became a meeting place of people who were a mixture of socially mobile, progressive, forward-thinking, uh, heavy Jewish involvement as well. Rothschild, Louis Rothschild was a member in uh, Vienna, and the head of the peace movement, Fried, was a member in Vienna, and they were in the same lodge that he joined as a bright young man. And he went to congresses, and when his book was published, um, Rothschild told Warburg, who was a banking Jewish banking colleague in Hamburg, uh, and told him about it. Warburg phoned and said, I'd like to meet you. And the result was several hundred thousand gold marks or whatever we were using at the time, uh, Austrian shillings. And uh, that paid for the first round, the first three years of Pan-Europa's work from 1923 to 26, which is the big Congress, is financed by Warburg's. He went on a lecture tour around America, financed by the Warburg brothers, who helped, one of whom helped set up the Federal Reserve. So they're in the same rich financial circuit in America. Uh, so he has latched onto and, and seriously been involved with the peace movement because he wants peace in Europe. He's not a pacifist because he wants an armed Europe for the role in the world, but peace in Europe. He's a Freemason, which is the brotherhood of men. Uh, he's a Platonist, if you like. So he believes in the guardians and the Freemasons fit into that for him. They are the leaders. Uh, the lead political leaders in different countries, all that comes together in this surge of popularity at a, an elite level, well-financed initially. Uh, later, it's financed by the membership of the movement, which is well over 10,000. Um, he's, he's publishing 10,000 copies of his monthly journal, which goes out to all members. That's a, logistically a tremendous operation. And he's writing 60 to 70% of the content every month. Pretty good. He, he's, he's, he's very fluent, very good. Um, I, if I make a quick comparison in Germanic terms, uh, Friedrich von Gentz was Metternich's right-hand man and was a fluent journalist. And he has the fluency of Friedrich von Gentz. Uh, he can sit down, write an article, and it's, it, it comes out perfect straight away. Very good. <laughs> and as I understand it, in any of three languages, either English, French, or German, Oh, yes, yes. And he understood Hungarian and Russian, and his father had 16 languages, so that shows you what you can do when you really try. <laughs> I, I, I'm intrigued by the, the title of the book. Um, you used the phrase uh, cosmopolitan bastard, which was the phrase that uh, Hitler used to describe him uh, in uh, a part of uh, Mein Kampf. I, I wonder if that isn't in some sense a, a recognition that uh, the movement that RCK uh, started and uh, promoted 
was actually rather successful because Hitler felt it, it worth commenting on the fact that he totally disavowed and disapproved of the position of RCK. Yes, you're, you're quite right. I mean, I, I, was, I was looking at it, looking it up only this morning just to get my quote right. Um, it's in about page 128 to 132 of what's known as the Zweites Buch, which was Hitler's third volume of Mein Kampf. The first two volumes were published in 1924 or 5, I believe, and 26 to 7. And this third one was written in 1928, ready for the publisher in 28. wasn't published because his books weren't selling as well as Kudenhoof Kalegi's books. That shows you what it was like. And the publisher said, you know, we've got to sell the first lot before I can print a third copy. So it went into a safe. Two copies came out at the end of the war. One, I think, no, I think one's lost now. One has been republished. 1961, it was published in Stuttgart um, as Hitler's Zeitus Buch. And page 128 to 132 there, he's dealing largely with foreign policy issues in this whole book. Uh, Hitler's got out of the, the, the rabble-rousing beginnings and it's starting to be marginally more reasoned uh, than most of Mein Kampf was. Um, but he tries to take Pan-Europa apart by saying that Pan-Europa's a mistake because it only concerns itself with quantity. It only concerns itself with the whole Europe and not the quality of anything in Europe. And when you look around Europe, you can see there are some races, some nations, some races in his terms, um, which are obvious leaders. They are the great culture nations. Um, but Germany in the lead, quite clearly, it's Germanic is the one that matters. Uh, so these numbers are irrelevant. What matters is the soul of a nation, not the size of a nation. So Europe will always be weak because it'll be full of disparate things which don't, don't add up to much. That's the argument. And in that, he criticizes, he, he says quite clearly, if you only worked on quantitative measures, pan-Europa might be a good solution. His phrase, not mine, right? But that a la Weltbastard Kudenhoof, right, has got it all wrong. It's not numbers that matter, it's quality that matters, which is a remarkable twist because Kudenhoof is going around all the time saying it's quality that matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But his quality is Europe-wide, whereas Hitler's is German-wide. Perhaps one thing is uh, when you say Europe-wide, what do we mean by Europe? Uh, it's clear to me that uh, he excluded the Soviet Union because of uh, his aversion to communism. But uh, what about Britain in this? As I, uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that in Pan-Europa, he sets Britain apart because of the empire. But uh, his attitude to Britain, I think, was rather more complicated than that. Am I right? Yes, yes, you're right. He starts by saying clearly the world is divided into or should be divided into four or five big groups of the big powers, what we would call superpowers. Um, and we saw that after the war, Second World War. Obviously, there was Russia and there was America. We were in the middle in Europe. That was We lived that experience. That's our generation's, our generation's life. But in the 20s, this was quite a, a big new thing to say that there were superpowers in the world. And one he saw was America capitalist wealth, tremendous potential. Another was ideological strength, the, the Russian interpretation of what the world should be like. Uh, another was the British one, which expanded through its white dominions, a sense of Britishness 
across the world, that the, the, the white British element was a unifying element for a worldwide empire. And he thought there should be a fourth, which should be European. Um, and that would put in the French, the Belgian, the Dutch colonies would also then be part of the empire of this united Europe. Uh, and that would be an equal power to these other three that I mentioned. He said also very vaguely, oddly vaguely for someone who's half Japanese, there would also be an Asian power. I'm not quite sure what he really meant by an Asian power, but I don't think he really knew, quite honestly. <clears throat> but the, the picture that he painted was one where the British Empire was clearly distinct from the European Empire. And that only changed, he tried to make it change on a visit in 1925. He came for about a month, just short of a month to London with his wife and had remarkable access. He, he had two people showing him in, William uh, Wickham Steed, who'd been a former editor of the Times, and uh, Leo Amory were opening doors for him. And he saw Ramsay MacDonald, he saw from Ramsay MacDonald down to the Regius Professor of Greek at, at Oxford. Uh, and he had all these conversations at a time when Britain was totally preoccupied with empire, in particular empire trading arrangements, the new imperial tariffs that would or would did, did emerge eventually in the 30s, but were emerging step by step through the 20s. And the debate in the press, it picked it up. It, I, I've not seen press quoting him by name, but it's quoting the debate between empire and Europe. And uh, there's statements in the house, there's statements in all the standard magazines of the time, the round table and all the rest of it, uh, about the options for Britain. And his conclusion is that after all these conversations with all these men, when they're put to the test and said, will you join with Europe? Uh, they all prefer not to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> so postponement was the name of the game in, in London. So, <clears throat> so he goes off and does an American tour and gathers um, opinion and sympathy in America for a federalized version of Europe, basically, uh, and comes back with that added support. And he's the only one of the a number of people who had an idea for Europe in those years that has any sort of American outreach at all. Yes, I, I, I'm struck by the fact that uh, the British commentary on the visit of uh, RCK was that he was, in the words of one official, uh, a thoroughly impractical theorist. Absolutely. And yet, despite that, over the years, and in particular, after the Second World War, which, uh, as you uh, as you recount in the book, he survives actually quite successfully by converting himself into a professor at American University. He returns and establishes, he continues his style of operation after the Second World War and establishes very close relations with Winston Churchill. Uh, who I discover refers to RCK in his um, 1946 speech in Zurich, actually by name. And, and I wondered whether as the empire kind of became less weighty in, uh, well, still weighty, but well, Britain was giving up part of its empire, did RCK's view of Britain rather change? Yes, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that um... The crisis was really 1940, where Britain offered union to France, uh, and he was also operating in Paris, obviously, as well as in London, um, where he realised, and I think many, many people in, in Britain realised, that um, days of empire were, were really rather numbered, that uh, we were going to be more on our own, or we would have to convert the empire after the war. 
uh, and the promises were made during the war about independence for India. Out of that came India, Pakistan, the partition, and then, and that was the jewel in the crown. And thereafter, great waves of, of independence during the 50s and 60s. And, and so Britain was manifestly in flux and seeking a role. This was the, the great American statement, you know, Britain has lost an empire, not yet found a role. And the role it was looking for, it was looking for really from about 1940 onwards. And that began as opposition to the Nazis. It transformed itself into uncertainty about, and Churchill is caught in the great uncertainty. He has three roles. One is this relation to Europe, the other's relation to the Commonwealth, and the third's the relation to the United States. Um, and Churchill, just like the pre-war people, and Churchill's an old man then in the 50s, he won't give up these three circles. He, he won't decide between them. He wants all three. <laughs> and fair enough, uh, for a while that, that holds together. But eventually the choices have to be made. And Kudenhove, in fact, dies in 1972, uh, literally a month, less than a month, after Britain has just voted to join the common market. I am struck also by another connection of his. Uh, the connections in the book are quite fascinating. There just doesn't seem to be anybody who's excluded. And one of those people is General de Gaulle, uh, who I never would have thought somebody who was in favor of European unity would uh, have necessarily attracted um, support or interest. But they became rather, rather close. And as I understood it, uh, RCK backed de Gaulle when he uh, issued the first veto on British membership uh, or application for membership in 1963. Yes, 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 indeed. Um, but th this, it, it looks on, on, at first sight rather odd that he should associate with de Gaulle, less so when you see his admiration for strong leaders. Uh, he's attracted to Churchill and mutatis mutandis, he's attracted to de Gaulle. And de Gaulle does have a vision for Europe. It, it's not the one that Brussels was promoting but it's a vision for Europe from Portugal to, to the Urals, or from the Atlantic to the Urals. Uh, and when the lukewarm response of Churchill, a uh, Churchill who won't decide really for Europe, he, he couldn't have nearly nudges him into supporting a federal Europe, but the most that he'll do is to support the Council of Europe with a European Parliament in it, a parliamentary assembly, the very first for Europe, which is what Kuhn has been crying out for since 1923. And he's got it in 1949. And everyone recognizes that. He gets the Karls Prize because of that. He's the first recipient of it, um, because he's the man intellectually behind a parliament for Europe. And that is the parliamentary assembly of the Council of Europe. Again, it's the Brits who've undermined that in federal terms by making sure that it's the member states that call the shots, but this advisory parliament exists and it's a first and good for him, good for him, great achievement. That's why his bust is in the corridors of power in, in, in the Palace of Europe in Strasbourg. Um, but his shift to the goal from Churchill is because the Brits won't engage in Europe. They won't decide for it. Whereas this man, de Gaulle, will, and the oddity is that the, the, the other movement for European unity, which is the French government before de Gaulle, under Schumann, actually in these terms, Schumann's declaration written by Jean Monnet, uh, establishes the Cold and Steel community, and eventually that develops down the road, which we all know, which we all study for Europe, that is the Europe that we study. Um, this is something which is neither Kudenhoop's first view nor de Gaulle's. 
And when de Gaulle comes back, what he wants is a different sort of Europe. He's all in favor of the integration, but not on a supranational level. It's the Fouché plan and things like that. that, that yes, uh, am I not right that RCK supported the Fouché plan uh, in the early 1960s, which was a way of uh, certainly trying to generate uni unity across Europe, but in the hands of those, the, the big powers. In the hands of the big powers, yeah, yeah. And it's ironic in a funny way that he's fought so hard against German domination, but he's quite prepared to have two or three big powers running it, and, and then the little ones really, you know, Luxembourg is, is very small compared to the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've, we've spoken now for over half an hour and suddenly the word Jean Monnet appeared. And it seemed to me uh, rather strange that we hadn't mentioned him up to now because they were almost contemporaries. Uh, they both died in the 1970s and they were both active throughout the first three quarters of the of the last century. Uh, but it's a, a famous fact that you point out in the book that actually uh, RCK doesn't get a single mention in Jean Monnet's uh, extensive memoirs. And I wondered whether, whether this was a result of the two of them not getting on terribly well as individuals, or whether it was more to do with the fact that they had very different conceptions about how European unity should be achieved. Well, if only we were all rational, the world would be a nicer place. But um, what, what, what there is a there's there are two answers to this, and one of them is about the universe, the, the the community method, which is Jean Monnet's invention. This is the small gradualist steps of practical integration which create common interest. Now, wildly successful. Look what's happened since the early fifties till now. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and that is. Nowhere made explicit for RCK doesn't say that. He, that's not his way of working. His way of working is finding the, the leaders and getting the leaders to agree, constitutional conference style, as it were, um, Treaty of Vienna style, bring them all together, sign it off, and then we'll work out the details afterwards. It's a quite different approach. Added to which, there's also a personal level where these two men have set off with different personalities whom they like or admire or do good things for them. When RCK was setting up his national chapters for Pan-Europa, he set up one in, big one in France, very important one. And one of his key leaders there was Louis Loucheur, who had been a minister in the First World War and who was a minister in governments during the 20s and died in the very early 30s. Um, but he was also a businessman and his business contacts went into Germany as well as France, and he was able to bring business together in the European level, and that helped Pan-Europa. He became one of the linchpins of Pan-Europa in Francophone world. And Loucheur, as a minister in the First World War, had queried the role of Monet in London, organizing transports across the Atlantic, and had said to Clemenceau, who is this young Monet whose memos land on my desk telling me what I'm going to have as Minister for Supply for the War Front uh, and when I'm going to have it? Who is he? And he learned that Monet was of recruiting age. And since he was also in charge of recruitment, he said that Monet must be recruited to the forces. Right? That was as unpleasant as that. And Clemenceau had to agree with his minister. Yes, Monet will be recruited and then made a rider 
and his post will remain in London operating this scheme that I have set up, which is coordinating supplies across the Atlantic. And Lucien and Monet were at daggers drawn. These, these were not people who spoke to each other. Uh, the incident is recorded in Monet's memoirs. If you read two little passages in Monet's memoirs, go into this. And uh, um, there's correspondence as well that I've come across um, RCK knowing of this. But the, uh, the, the difficulty lies way back there, that something that was linchpin to the Paneuropa operation was in fact anathema to Monet at a personal level. And I don't think that could have endeared them to, or led them to good relations in the 50s. People aren't that rational. <laughs> Did they ever meet? Well, they met indeed. Yes, yes, they met. They were both recipients of the Carls Prize. And Monet got it in 53, couldn't have got it in 50, Monet 53, Churchill in 55. And all the, the past recipients come to the event for the next award. And so there were meetings like that and, and social meetings. But the correspondence between them shows whenever RCK was asking for a meeting in order to explain our ideas and get us on a common footing and talk to the leaders properly, um, Monet was backing off. He was saying, no, I'm not quite sure what we should discuss, or I don't think I agree on that, or that they, they failed to engage at a, a personal level when Monet was in a European role. When I look at Monet, Monet was a, uh, was a rather successful international civil servant who was there, was a man who organised things. He organised the uh, transport of munitions in the First World War. He was an organiser in the Second World War and then worked for the coal and steel community. Uh, and RTK was an organiser, but not of policy. He was an organiser of events and of a night trying to organise people around an idea he didn't get involved in the sort of the, the nitty-gritty of how many uh, um, missiles or shells should be sent from the United States to France I mean it just seems to me they were just very different kinds of people you're, you're right you, you've nailed it to, to a T in the modern terms in modern Brussels terminology um, Monet was a civil servant he was a functionaire is very a leading functionaire with ideas, not just an ex executant, but he was a leading functionaire who, th who thought. And RCK thought, but thought outside institutions, not inside institutions. He wanted to create them, preferably lead them if he, cre if he created them, <laughs> but he wasn't someone who would fit into a structure and organize within someone else's ideas. He was outside it. He was a lobbyist, in a sense, if you like, a very, very high level lobbyist. Yeah, I, I do think, though, there's uh, there's one thing in the book that I thought was very striking is that uh, actually uh, for those of our listeners who watch uh, Humphrey Bogart in uh, Casablanca, <laughs> Uh, they should be reminded that uh, Victor Laszlo, the uh, Czech resistance fighter who figures in that book, was actually uh, modelled on uh, RCK. So RCK, in a sense, lives on through one of the most famous films ever made. Uh, so when... Yes. Uh, so even if people don't actually know very much about him, they should know that he influenced and inspired other people to do things in, uh, based on his life. Oh, yes, yes. And, and th that inspirational spark is, if you know the film of, of Casablanca, I, I recommend watching it. It's great fun. It's, it's superb. There's a scene in which Victor Laszlo 
organizes the singing of the Marseillaise in Rick's bar in Casablanca, as opposed to Die Wacht am Rhein, which the three or four Nazis are trying to get going in the other corner. And of course, the enthusiasm for the Marseillaise is fantastic. And it's led by Paul Henriet, who's the actor. And the actor was at school with the younger brother of Kudenhoof Kalergi, and the families knew each other, and the, the scriptwriters back in Hollywood knew the Kudenhoof. Uh, the Kudenhoof Kalergi had been the man who traveled Europe, all organizing the leading anti-Nazis in power and out of power before the war. And that's where the figure comes from. Right. Well, I think as, as we're coming towards the end of the talk, it did, uh, did seem to me that it would be useful to kind of look back across his career and ask yourself the question, well, what did this all amount to? All of this uh, traveling across the whole of Europe to the United States, all of these meetings, the congresses, the discussions with leaders, uh, what can we say actually was the contribution of RCK to uh, the unification of Europe? Well, uh, I mean, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I think it's actually colossal. Um, we have one story, uh, put it in personality terms, we have one story, which is the Monet-Brussels story of European unification. There is another one. And the other one is the political uh, image, the cultural political image of a European identity, which is lo much longer, much older. It goes right back to medieval times and things like that. But let's be realistic, in modern technologically advanced times, it it goes back to Kudenhoof Kalergi. That's where it comes from, Pan-European 1923. That's the first time someone puts it down and says, it's not small steps of economic integration that I'm talking about. I'm talking about European identity, European role, European role in the world. And that's where it comes from. This man has invented the European, suggested the European passport, the European driving license, uh, the, what's it, uh, he suggests English as the lingua franca because no one on the continent has it as a national language, but it will be fair for everyone to use English because it's a world language. That's a brilliant suggestion in 1927, I think he comes up with this. Yeah. <laughs> Guy is ahead of his time and we are coming up to the time that he was talking about. People now, if you listen to Macron's speeches, he's talking about leadership. I know there's a French tradition in this, it's a bit of it's de Gaulle, but part of it also is Kudenhoof Kalegi. He has quoted him. So also has the Russian foreign minister quoted Kudenhoof Kalegi. I think that this man is more alive than some people think. Yes, I, I, I hope that this conversation has helped to bring his uh, life uh, to the attention of the Anglosphere, if you want to call it that, uh, in a way that is perhaps not so necessary in, say, France, Germany or Austria, where you will find squares and roads named after him. Uh, you will not find that in London, to the best of my knowledge. And I think uh, in that sense, I hope this interview will have encouraged people not only to read the, the book, which I must say I enjoyed immensely, Martin, uh, but also to think about the role that this uh, remarkable person played. Thank you very much indeed, Martin. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. 
This discussion was between Professor Micah Sheckerton and Dr. Martin Bond about this first English language biography of Richard Kudenhof Kalergi, which is published in April 2021 by Metro Queen's University Press under the title Hitler's Cosmopolitan Bastard.